Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. The human project cannot be adequately conducted on social media platforms. We are more complex than our tweets. We will not be trolled, bullied, or gaslit. And we will not troll, bully, or gaslight others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, citizen activist and congressional candidate, my neighbor, Allison Fine. So there are things worth getting yourself up and fighting for. And this moment in time, fighting for the country, fighting for our future, seems worth it. Not that it's going to be easy, but it's worth it. It wasn't a great grand life plan, but I also didn't want to regret uh, missing this moment in time. Allison will be sharing how we can all step up and take back democratic institutions for the public good. It's not too late to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. We're doing a Team Human Live with Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir in New York City at WNYC's The Green Space on Thursday, March 5th. That's coming right up. Find out more at teamhuman.fm. As always, subscribers come free. And you, too, can become a subscriber and support this show by coming to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Or you can go to uh, patreon.com slash teamhuman and get to the same place. We've got all sorts of new premiums from digital copies of my first book, Siberia, to new beautiful long sleeve Team Human Find the Others jerseys. Join subscribers like Jason Hill, Boris Greencott, Kerry Smith, Stephen Keel, and Soren Lindgren. Thanks for being on Team Human. You can also hear Team Human on the radio on stations like X-Ray in Portland, Oregon, KXRC in Durango, California, and KSPC in Claremont, California. That's very West Coast. If you want Team Human on your terrestrial radio station, maybe near the Mississippi, in the South, on the East Coast, please let them know or email us at team at teamhuman.fm. So I have a new piece in Medium this week where you can find written versions of all my monologues at medium.com slash team dash human, as well as archives of this show and the complete ongoing serialization of the Team Human book. I won't read you this week's piece, which is entitled How Democrats Rage Tweeting Will Help Russia Weaponize the Election Again, because the piece itself, it's written in a kind of satirical form of a communique from Russia's U.S. propagandists to Vladimir Putin. It's a preview of the memes they're going to use against America in the 2020 election. 
And the funny part, or the sad part, I guess, is that they're gleaning all of these ideas from today's intra-party social media spats on Twitter. As the propagandist explains it, Twitter activity in the, the 2020, 2020 primary season, season is once again providing us with troves of intelligence on which wedge issues to leverage against Americans in the general campaign and beyond. It's as if this platform is doing our work for us. So he goes on to deconstruct the memes being used against each candidate and to analyze the rifts in the American psyche that each one of them exposes, our emotional and ideological vulnerabilities, like uh, Bernie Sanders' endorsement from Joe Rogan, and how this helps Bernie haters and the DNC recast Bernie as some kind of white supremacist socialist version of a MAGA boy. But the fictional Russian propagandist, he then follows through the angry comment sections where Bernie's supporters are arguing that transphobic and misogynist young men should be welcomed as comrades into the universal war against capitalism. And those focused on cultural identity, how they believe such voters would corrupt the moral integrity of the party. So then the Russian propagandist says, We are already quite experienced at beating class activists against race activists. A Soviet strategy dating back to the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Amazingly, these two groups of activists still do not realize they are the same people. And the piece ends with the propagandist wondering if Americans might come to realize how bad Twitter is for their public discourse and then actually turn away from the platform. But he eventually brushes all this off, concluding that, Luckily, however, even if a vast majority of Americans turn away from Twitter and Facebook, their news media are still dependent on these platforms for incendiary memes capable of garnering good ratings. So as long as we can fool CNN's research interns that these issues are trending, even Americans who have sworn off social media will still be exposed to our work through traditional media channels. You can read the whole thing on Medium or find the link on this show's page at teamhuman.fm. But that's the problem I want to address here, how we can't try to resolve our personal and political issues on platforms like Twitter. First off, the whole platform is constructed both accidentally and intentionally to elicit knee-jerk, angry, impulsive reactions. You can't do your best thinking or highest feeling on social media. It's just the wrong tool for the job. And when formerly real news agencies like CNN and MSNBC base their understanding of public sentiment by looking at Twitter, they get a totally distorted picture. So now they're busy reporting on how Bernie's supporters are angry boys, which isn't even true. I mean, you mean boys like Molly Crabapple and Naomi Klein, who have both terrific Team Human episodes, by the way, or uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, those kinds of bros. But when I see Bernie getting attacked and marginalized like this from people like Hillary Clinton or even Barack Obama, I find myself radicalized too, moving further into Bernie's corner, when up until a week ago, I felt equally positive about both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. And Warren took her fair share of abuse from centrists, misogynists, and bots alike when she was on top. Bloomberg announced his candidacy at least in part in reaction to the possibility of structural change that would come from someone like Warren. And I don't like the feeling of being radicalized against my will. But I'm also saddened when I see progressive thinkers and journalists make snap decisions about candidates based on obnoxious tweets by accounts claiming to be supporters. I now finally understand how Trump supporters felt in 2016. Meanwhile, I've got other friends misusing Twitter as a, a form of therapy. I mean, I get it. Twitter can offer a sense of validation sometimes. For instance, I, I have many friends who were sexually abused at some point in their lives. But those who seek to work out those issues on Twitter or Facebook, they almost always lose out as a result. I mean, yeah, there's lots of likes and positive comments, but there's also mean ones and trolling and gaslighting and even bots. And this more than outweighs the compassion and solidarity. It simply re-traumatizes the victim of PTSD. I mean, we've got 
traumatized people triggered by Trump, Epstein, Weinstein, and they're turning to Twitter instead of therapy or or to real friends. The trauma gets exacerbated. They get further victimized and the rage further embedded. This is not the way to correct our collective course. No, the path to coherence involves not typing fingertips, but walking feet. The restoration of the personal psyche and the public discourse happens in the local, incarnate reality. You don't have to start a new organization or a website or an app. Just walk outside, knock on doors, find your town hall, invest yourself in local government, stop complaining, engage in deep canvassing, run for office. Twitter is not an accurate reflection of what the world thinks of you. Do something real. See the results. Find the others. You want to meet someone just like you or me who has chosen to get off her ass and do something? Meet my friend and neighbor, Allison Fine, a social change agent and nonprofit organization founder who's been writing and thinking about online activism for the past decade. She's been working for grassroots organizations dealing with housing, food security, women's issues, and immigration since I've known her. And now that her kids are out of the house and politics is out of its mind, she's stepping up and running for U.S. Congress, New York District 17. My view of Nancy Pelosi really has changed over the last weeks watching her operate that I haven't seen somebody with both the sort of the goal set that she has, which I think is some, you know, to bring back some kind of integrity into politics and democracy. And Sheer cunning, I don't mean manipulative cunning, but almost mathematical gamesmanship. I feel like I'm watching Boris Spassky, who playing Bobby Fischer at chess, you know. That's exactly right. She's playing chess and the rest of them are playing checkers, right? She's a couple of steps ahead of everybody else. Nothing she does has not been thought out and planned. There's no spontaneity there. You know, she's a master strategist and knows all the rules and tools at her disposal to make things happen. I thought the most brilliant thing she did was wait for the Ukraine incident to come to light to start the impeachment inquiry. Having said she was reluctant to do it and then making sure that she had really an airtight case, right? He had already admitted to this <laughs> the driveway right. at the White House. And then moving, I thought was brilliant. On this show, I try to make Trump's arguments for him, because I'm trying to open people's hearts, you know, to both sides. And I can see kind of both sides. But then I think, okay, let's say the Trump side is there's deep state and neoliberalism and this web of international corrupt Hillary-like big money transnational corporate relationships. And I really want to just simplify things, get America back to America and break some of these potentially treacherous alliances. And he could look at his Ukraine situation and say, I don't like this. Can he just tell the ambassador, I don't like the direction you're going. It feels too deep state-ish to me. I'm going to replace you with someone else. Why do you need then Giuliani and all these people to go in there and, and undermine her? So remember, there were two tracks at play here. So there was one track of Trump trying to pressure Ukraine to get dirt on Biden. There's the other track that Giuliani was also involved in of trying to make money out of Ukraine, right? And so there's corruption in both tracks of that, but they're different things. So Trump needed the ambassador out because she was trying to pressure Ukraine to be anti-corrupt and corruption is in his best interests. That's different also from the money Giuliani was trying to make out of Ukraine. So there are these multiple tracks of really bad behavior going on. And of course, any president can appoint the ambassador that they want. Uh, The problem here is an American president firing an ambassador who's anti-corruption in that that country, right? Right. So we have a pro-corruption president is what we have. Right. And then so all the machinations are to sort of re-spin. It's their corruption is the problem, not 
not my, my corruption. corruption. Right. right. Or everybody's corrupt. So at least my corruption, you can understand. I just want to build some more golf courses. And, and that is his whole state of being, right? <laughs> that if I'm, if I'm corrupt in sunlight, there's nothing really wrong with it. I have told you what I'm going to do and then I do it. When I look at all this stuff, half of me is fascinated by it and I want to comment on it and try to fix it and all that. And more than half of me wants to turn it off completely. And like I've been talking on this show, just go back and do some theater, you know, get back into the arts because this has just gotten too rough and horrible and nauseating. I can't even watch any of it anymore. Yet you have to have decided to tack into the wind, <laughs> right? And actually run for Congress. And this is not, Congress is not like New York state legislature school board. Congress is the one with the big dome yeah. in Washington, DC. Yeah. Well, that's the point. That's the point, right? Is that we are so broken right now. I actually want to go into the belly of the beast to try to get us to the next chapter. Doug, I think it's really, really important that we pay attention to what's going on now, but we not get stuck in what's going on now. It's awful. I'm awfully glad that people are activated and engaged and paying attention and hitting the ground and protesting and voting. Mm -hmm. That is terrific for democracy. But the reason why I'm running is to get us to the next chapter in our history, right? To move us forward. That's what leaders do. And that's why I'm running. And then what is that next place? I mean, let's worry about how we get there after. What does the next place look like realistically? Part of what's making this moment in time feel so awful for everybody is that we're hanging on to the very, very end of the industrial age, right? That's why those old white guys are holding on so tight. Mm -hmm. That's an age that they understand well, where we have great concentrations of wealth and power, particularly in corporations. And even our digital companies, which I thought would launch us into something else. Facebook, Google, these are industrial age business models. They're extractive television era surveillance economic BS. We were on the ground floor of this digital age together. Mm -hmm. And we were techtopians and it was so exciting. We said, oh, power shifting and people can do things uh, institutions can't anymore and it will all be distributed and it will be, you know, we'll be freer. In our lifetime. In our lifetime. And then we had Google, Facebook and others go back to the industrial age model of trying to get eyeballs and creating filter bubbles Mm -hmm. and doing really dreadful things with our data. And kept saying, no, 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 we are going to preserve your privacy and then doing it again. Right. right? How many times is Mark Zuckerberg going to do this again and again? Right. They keep pushing right? and they go, oh, our oh, bad. We didn't we'll mean take it. it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. We won't do it again. <laughs> and we keep going, okay, don't do yeah. it again. So first of all, we have to shift to the green economy, right? That's where innovation is going to come from. That's where jobs are going to come from because we're about to lose a lot of jobs to automation Automation is going to be what I call an equal opportunity disruptor, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to lose jobs across the economy. So we need the federal government to invest heavily in technology innovations to spur the green economy, right? Get that R&D out uh, into the world. We need to incentivize companies to become more green. We need developers to build smart buildings because... Buildings are where the most CO2 Mm -hmm. uh, is lost. We think it's cars, but it's not. It's buildings. And we've got to have the government, frankly, make capital accessible to entrepreneurs. Right. So women and people of color still have access to less than 3% of VC money in the country. So that means we're taking a majority of the people of this country and making entrepreneurship impossible for them. That's no way to move into the future. We have to pivot in education and move from Again, an industrial era educational model that focuses on what children should learn and we have to teach them how to learn, right. how to be lifelong learners, how to be creative problem solvers, right? That's the way to get to the to the next. And then you and I are going to have to fight really hard to make sure tech is used for good and not evil. Right. And that, that's a tricky one that's because really even some one. of the people who think they're doing good with it, you know, like dear Michael Bloomberg gives Roosevelt Island of New York to Cornell Tech. And I know they mean well, and maybe they're probably doing better now, but the goal was to create Silicon Valley East right. to imitate the venture capital model and say, let's just do it in New York. And they think they're going to not lead to zillions of homeless people mm. all over Queens and Manhattan mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. I I like connecting the dots, right? You can go back to Reagan administration that got rid of the block grants that were going to community groups Mm -hmm. and connect the dots to an increase in community distress across the country because of the reduction in investment in areas like housing, like mental health, like local environment. We stopped investing in community-based groups and distress goes up. So in this next era where we're already seeing 
huge distress in affordable housing, uh, in homelessness, places like Los Angeles that have enormous homeless camps. They look like Hoovervilles. We need the federal government to step up and, and invest in local communities because that's how we're going to live in this next era. I saw an estimate the other day, Doug, that said 70% of our conversations within 10 years are all going to be with robots, with some kind of computer interface. That's uh, frightening. Right. That's right? like your team human. Right. <laughs> How do we I hold know. on to our humanity? For video gamers, it's what we call non-player characters. Right. You know, and there's a difference. I mean, yeah, you can play Street Fighter 2 on your computer with nobody there and you play these characters. Or the fun way is your friend comes over and you play them. But in a digital landscape, it seems like people are more and more comfortable. We know we're history buffs. We know every chapter in technology is frightening uh, for people. (laughs) Uh, There were people who were terrified of uh, movies in the cinema, you know, as taking away our humanity. And so here we are again. However, both the speed and the pervasiveness of this technology in every facet of our lives really is frightening. And I know people who are having conversations with Siri every day right. in their houses, right? <laughs> right? Is that really a conversation? Conversation, by definition, means an exchange between human beings. And, as, and the less and less of that we have, yes. the less social capacity we have. Yes. So people go into their school board meeting or yeah. their local zoning meeting, yeah. and they, all they know how to do is fight. Well, that's just it. We have... Nowhere right now where we're practicing having civil conversations between people. We're supposed to do it in Starbucks. That's our new third place, right? My friend Joan Blades, right? She founded Move On. She founded Moms Rising. She now has a new initiative called Living Room Conversations to take people along the continuum politically, bring them into a living room and practice having these conversations. We need schools to do this. You would think, but you know, and even here in glorious Hastings on Hudson, New York, progressive district, they're spending more and more of their time on their Chromebooks or their iPads in the classroom. And it's like, they're going to go home and go on their friggin' iBooks. And even if it's to do Quizlets or whatever, they're going to be on there already. This is like such valuable, a few hours a day to be in a room and model the behavior of an educator, you know, to see what does a human body look like? What does a face look like when it's learning, when it's researching? And then the kid can model that and bring that into life. It, I know it's primitive and it does, it's not about the textbook. It's about the human to human mimesis. This is why we have to move forward, right? And I really feel for school boards and teachers right now, the bureaucracy they have to deal with, with all the requirements and the testing and the They're limits being they have. digitally. Every second of the day, there is no room for creativity. There's no room for artistry. There's no room for the kind of creativity you and I would love to see kids engaged in. And that would really engage kids. They want to be engaged that way. And yet we've created these bureaucratic, robotic efforts at education that are reductive and dehumanizing and don't suit the next era. Yep. And a lot of it really goes all the way back to um, Sputnik and the space race and back to your industrial age model. They put Sputnik up into space. We were scared they were going to literally, we were scared they were going to paint a sickle on the moon. So we decided we need to get kids to the level where they can do calculus in high school. It was the pre-STEM. There's math and science and facts, shove facts into these kids. And it's not yielding creative humans. You can learn the calculus when you need it. You know, to okay, you want to go in the space program? All right, you're going to have to know how how that works. But if you don't know how to learn, you end up with these kids with this knowledge just kind of pouring out of the overflowing data, and still no sense making capability. Yeah, I think that's right. I remember how disappointing it was for my kids to go from Montessori preschool into regular school. And I remember my oldest son Max being so confused. He said in kindergarten. We have work time and recess time. And that was just such a foreign concept to him, you know, (laughs) that it had all been interesting and creative before. And now why would you split your time between work and not work? And that's the beginning of 12 years of doing that with kids, right? I know. Or, uh, you know, my daughter's really good at 
raising her hand in class, figuring out what the teacher wants. And that's part of her personality is she wants to please those teachers and all. But she doesn't think of the activity that happens in school as her learning. It's like, okay, I've done that. I got them all to like me, got good grades. Now I'm going to go home and figure something out that I'm actually interested interested in, in, (laughs) that I'm passionate about, that I'm creative in, right? That I'm fully human for. And it is a little bit heartbreaking. I still think we have time because the greatness of America has always been our creativity, our entrepreneurship. The universities that we have are still the envy of the world. The national labs are the envy of the world. And we need to refocus on unleashing all of that creativity, all of that entrepreneurship in the next chapter. It's interesting. I mean, and this is kind of heady in a way, but when, you know, when you say we, you know, we in America have these abilities, I start to wonder about even the structure of a nation state today. You know, and I go back and say, look at the history of the nation state. Where did it come from? It's not real. We no, come up with an these, artificial construct, right? These national myths of yeah. origin that we all have the same this or the same that, and therefore we came up. And then I look at things like the border and I understand what the red state people are saying that if you don't have a boundary, then you don't have a nation. You can't just let everybody in. There's starving people everywhere. If you all they have to do is touch the shore and they're allowed here, then where's our country? And then you think, well, maybe we can't really have it. We just got to be a world or something. How do we deal? How do you think about the boundary of a country? Where does our responsibility stop as people? And there's someone right on the other side of the line over in Mexico who can't eat or is getting attacked and raped by people. Aren't they part of our family? Mm -hmm. I think one of the real dangers and downsides of nationalism is pretending that we largely live alone in our, you know, in our bubble of America. And by pulling back from investments in other countries, we're just making the refugee crisis even worse, right? So climate is exacerbating huge problems in countries around the world, um, making poorer countries poorer, not investing in women and girls, which we know increases prosperity in countries around the world is a huge mistake. And not dealing with corruption uh, around the world is a huge problem. So by pulling back and pretending that we can isolate ourselves from the rest of the world is a, a fool's errand. So that's exacerbating the immigration problem. Clearly, we need comprehensive immigration reform. We need to we need to pass the DREAM Act and treat all the DACA people as citizens. They've grown up here, for gosh sakes. Um, and we need a pathway to citizenship for people. Um, but it is heartbreaking, Doug, that the fear mongering that's happened in the last few years enables us as a country to pull families apart at the at the border to treat people in such a shameful, shameful way, right? As not human beings, this is what fear does to people and and what demagoguery does. And uh, it's a dreadful thing. And it, uh, it will be seen, I think, as a dreadful chapter in our history, doing that to people. I mean, a lot of what you say for me resonates as, uh, as a Jew. Mm-hmm. And I know some of your, I wouldn't, I would call it your political background has been, you know, running a Jewish institution, which yeah. is as political. I mean, yes. <laughs> to yes, compare yes, that yes. to Congress, right? I don't know which is you can the be, more ruthless place. If you can be president of a synagogue, you can do anything, right? <laughs> right exactly. Yeah. I mean, but not just the Jewish idea of, of tikkun olam and healing the world and all that, which I look at as sort of almost modern Judaism. That's my perspective, because that was until medieval times, is the thing that Jews are in some ways most hated for, is something that we do really well, which is see the world as one place, that we want to apply universal justice. And that on some level, it doesn't mean not respecting the nation that you're in and individual nations, but we understand that the nation is a social construct and that justice has to be universal, that it's everywhere. And that's really troubling to particularists, you know, Mm -hmm. to people who want it in one place. And they look at when we talk about this and well, the immigrant and the DACA and all that, we are to the sort of alt-right radical nationalist. We are the face of immigration. Mm. We are the white looking immigrant arguing on behalf of our brothers and sisters, the Mexicans and Mm. the blacks and the Chinese and everybody else who's being enslaved and oppressed. So in some ways, this is the Soros Jewish conspiracy coming to light, if you know what I mean. That's interesting. I I think a lot about the core tenet of 
our faith is welcoming the stranger. Right. And we have so often been the stranger, you know, been in the diaspora. And I think for people who believe that, making uh, the United States a welcoming place for anybody, not and not just the country, literally our home, our table, right? We welcome people for Shabbat is part of what makes us a civilized people. And you would right? think anybody who's even, you know, certainly on the far right who's or evangelical who's read Torah or Bible, as, yeah. as they would call it, they would look and they say, well, why was Lot saved? You know, why was Lot, Abraham's brother, saved? It's because he welcomed the stranger. He risked his life to let the stranger in, to not be sodomized by the people of sodomy. You know, and that's it is. It's the core tenet of Judeo-Christian religion. But now to look at the stranger and say, well, they're not welcome here. Let's put their kids in cages as a deterrent. Demagoguery is the easiest thing to do, right? To make somebody else the other lesser, less human, less worthy than you gives people who are afraid something to hold on to. And that's what Trump has been masterful at and what the whole Republican Party has fallen in line with, right? That we can appeal to uh, white people across the country who feel like they're losing their place, right? This new world is frightening. The old rules don't apply. You, you, You feel insecure in everything, particularly economically. So what do you do? You take it out on brown people at the border. That's easy. It's back to Pharaoh. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's horrific. Trump talks right? like the Pharaoh, right? talking about humans as insects and an but invasion I, and infestation. Look, I think also though the, the Democratic Party lost its way in really not addressing the economic insecurity so many people are right. feeling. Right, and that's that's really what spurred me to run, Doug, is the fact that it doesn't add up for people anymore. You used to have a job; the job came with benefits. Right. And you could stay in that job for a while. Now people are hopping gig to gig with fewer benefits, needing, you know, working longer hours, oftentimes in service jobs, not even be able to schedule their hours. You don't know when you're working, which is awful way to live. And you can't build any wealth and you don't have security. And that is one of the deepest seated fears somebody can have. Right. At the end of the day or end of the month, I don't know that I can make it. The ground under my feet is not stable. I'm standing on sand. So my 23-year-old son is a freelance video editor. He has no benefits. If he's not working, he's not getting paid. He can't build any wealth, right? right? My friend Don, 52, laid off from Wall Street, replaced by a freelancer. So Don has moved to consulting. He has no idea how much money he's going to make next month. He's lost his, you know, his 401k. Like, it's just so frightening to not have that, you know, land underneath your feet. Right. And And so many of us are taking care of aging parents, right? We're living longer and it doesn't add up. And that's, I think, in large part, what Trump plugs into that deep seated fear of, I don't know that I can make it. So why should somebody else get a chance? Right. And then the people that vote for it, I mean, well, the people that support it are two main constituencies. One are the people who have enough capital and sh- basically shareholders who are going to benefit from that. Because all the people that you're that you're talking about who are going out of work, that's to increase the margins for the extractive shareholder that, oh, we can hire three freelancers to do what this 50-year-old guy did, pay them $20 instead of $50,000. There's the shareholders get that. I understand. And I could be one of those shareholders. I'm getting enough now because I'm teaching a Queens. I have a four. 401k plan, which they put into um, some kind of index fund thing. So now I'm on the other side, right? right? Or part of me is. And the more that Trump does to help people extract value from real people, the better my retirement thing is. So I could take that. I mean, I'm not quite there yet where it's actually going to work, but let's just say there was enough in there where, okay, now I'm going to be fine. And then people who think that the Mexicans are taking their jobs or that the Jews are going to replace them. And Trump's admitted to it. He speaks worse about that crowd than Hillary did. He doesn't just call them deplorables. He called them stupid. He said, I'm going to run as a Republican because I can get those stupid people to vote for me by being a racist. He's said it. He's spoken it out loud. I don't know why they don't even hear that. They hear deplorables. They don't hear that. He said it. On some level, the ultra wealthy are saying, well, look, we're voting the way these people want us to. You know, and the only ones then who don't are these kind of whatever, what they see as corrupt, the sort of upper middle class intellectuals, suburbanites and city people who are 
concern for those with less means than themselves. You know, and you can see this divide. It's so interesting. I was talking to somebody who works for a union the other day, and he was saying, you know, that the the union as an institution is so at odds with the membership politically, right? And we saw this in, in 2016, and it continues. And it's so hard to pull apart just the visceral reaction people have to Trump. And I think of it, Doug, as like, you get to punch somebody in the nose every single day if you're for him. And there's something just visceral about that. And satisfying. And satisfying. <laughs> Has nothing to do with your brain. Right. right. Totally emotional. Nobody else does that for them. And I'm going to take race out of that. Yeah. You know, I think there are a big chunk of people who are feeling so powerless and so frightened that he's the elixir. Right. And, and we have a, not given them an alternative yet. And it's good TV. I mean... You know, and this is back to mesmerizing. what Neil Postman was talking about back in Amusing Ourselves to Death, yeah. or I've been talking about the Frankfurt Group a lot lately and how they were concerned with the spectacle, that when uh, news becomes entertainment and, and politics becomes spectacle, you're going to vote for who's going to make the best TV. And, you know, it's an American Idol sort of situation. And Trump is better TV than, than anybody. Warren. Than anybody. He's, he's a master uh, at it. It's immoral. <laughs> it's awful. But boy, is he a master at that, right? Right. It's like watching That's Jackie his... Mason or something, mm. you know, but the same <laughs> politics, actually. But it's it's entertaining. It's yeah. a Joan Rivers kind of presidency. Right. The challenge for us is to fight really hard in this moment to make sure he's defeated in November, but not get so mesmerized by it. We miss the opportunity to look forward. Right. Right. And to start pushing ourselves to the next chapter. Yeah. So half right? of me thinks it's like, let's make politics boring again, mm -hmm. you know, on a certain level. Mm -hmm. I, but then when I think about it, really, I don't want it to be boring. Let's make politics AOC again. You know, there's an excitement about women getting involved in regular. And I don't mean to just call you a regular woman, but I know you as a woman, not as some celebrity politician person. You had kids. You're an empty nester mm -hmm. now. <laughs> not happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to run for Congress. But I mean, and I know you've, you've helped organizations a lot understand, you know, social media and the, the, the new environment. And you've helped them rethink who they are in this landscape. And now I guess you're kind of saying I can turn those same skills to how can government rethink itself mm -hmm. in this new landscape. Mm -hmm. But what were the triggers, if that was to say, what were the triggers, the motivators, the catalysts for you to say, OK, I'm actually going to go do this? So Nita Lowy is a legend, right? 31 years in Congress. It is almost impossible to find somebody who doesn't think the world of her, and I do. Nita has been the champion in Congress for women's reproductive freedom for three decades. That's huge. I Until I ran for this office, I was chair of the National Board of NARAL, Pro-Choice America right. Foundation, right? The largest advocacy group for pro-choice policies and electeds. So that was a huge motivation. In addition, Doug, I just don't hear enough people in DC who understand the technology like you and I do, understand where it's going and what DC needs to do to harness it, make sure it's used for good and not evil. And all of the work I've done is about shifting power, shifting power from institutions to individuals, giving people the tools to live the life they want to live, lead. And I don't see that happening enough. So it wasn't a great grand life plan, but I also didn't want to regret uh, missing this moment uh, in time. Would you be one of the, what are they called? The Furious Five or the... AOC uh, in those? No, I you... don't think I'd be a member of the squad. <laughs> the I'm, squad. A, I'm a very, I'm a grown up person. <laughs> I love Katie Porter. I love Elise Slotkin, right? These are women who just looked up and said, we need to be better than this moment in time. They're problem solvers. They are great listeners and they're also fighters. And I'll tell you what, in the last three, four years, I have been fighting for um, reproductive freedom in places like Georgia and Iowa. That's a frontline fight. I, in fact, I became chair of the national board at NARAL while we were watching the Kavanaugh hearings. That wow. was a tough day. So there are things worth getting yourself up and fighting for. And this moment in time, fighting for the country, fighting for our future seems worth it. Not that it's yeah. going to be easy, but it's worth it. 2020 is the beginning of this fight, not the end. I do worry mm. a bit about people thinking we can elect a president in 2020 and be all done. One of the lessons of 2016 was how much work there was to be done to build power at in every single state, 
right. including New York, right? That we had just thought that blue was blue. It wasn't right. blue enough. One of the things that I did uh, after 2016 was start the network of elected women. So women are running for municipal level offices at record levels, the town and city and county level, and they're winning. But the day after election, everybody goes home. And women are showing up to these tables where they're often one of just a few women sitting there. They're not fully prepared and they're not protected from the amount of harassment they get. Women at the local level in public office don't get as much harassment as the squad does in Congress, but they have no staff and they have no protection and they don't run for re-election at the same rate that men do. So I started the network of elected women to create circles of these women to come together once a month in someone's living room, to share, to connect, to learn to build collective power and to ascend the political ladder if that's what they so choose. And we have women here in New York, in North Carolina, in Florida doing that. I've got 25 women in Westchester who come together once a month. What's fascinating and also what was motivating for me to run, Doug, is nobody ever asks a woman to run for office. You don't get the invitation from the party. You know, it doesn't come in the mail saying, please run for this office. You got to step up and run for it and go through all of the noise of you're an outsider and you're not qualified. Every single woman gets that um, pushback. And that's why we need collective action, right? And that's the kind of grassroots progressive power building we need to do for years now. But the other thing you're alluding to is the uh, Gamergate-like treatment mm-hmm. that every woman gets. Mm-hmm. Just, just for, from sitting there, right. from being there, from being in the room. And the internet, of course, you know, makes that way more harsh and way more, way more in your face. What are you expecting and how do you hope to cope with it? Originally, when I heard you were running... Half of me was like, yay, this is cool. But someone I know, it's a woman. She's actually a good person and she's real. She's just going to talk. You're not going to, you're so unscripted, you know. And For good and bad. For good and bad. <laughs> but yeah, but you know what I mean? It's like everybody's so dead yeah. that you're, oh, here's a live one who's mm-hmm. actually going to answer questions and stuff. And we're going to find out what's going on. You're going to come back and tell us how does Washington work and what's going on. We're going to have a window. That's great. But then the other half of me was thinking, oh no, mm. what are they going to do to her? <laughs> you know what I mean? These hard people and frogs and things are going to come at you. you Yeah. Yeah. So look, one of the upsides of being an outsider is that you're underestimated and I'm always underestimated in every room I go into. And so that's a great opportunity as well. Uh, And the other thing is I've dealt with trolls for a long time, right? You and I've been in the digital world for a long time. You can't be there and not have sadly, you know, been attacked. And most of it isn't real. People online don't really know you uh, as a human being. So you just move on. You know, I'm a grown ass woman. Now, is there someone that you're going to run against that we know who who it is? So it's a crowded primary. There are a couple of there's a, a state assemblyman, David Buckwald, who's running. There's a state senator, David Carlucci. He used to caucus with the Republicans who's running. He's part of the IDC. And so then there's a bunch of people going to run for the Democratic primary. Correct. And it's. It's this one guy and this yeah. other guy yeah. and you, basically. Well, there's a young fellow named Mondaire Jones, African-American, 32 years old, from Rockland, has an amazing life story. And then there are a few other folks. The core of our organizing right now is we're organizing living room conversations. Uh, we've had three in the last week of asking people to bring their friends into their living room. And it's 15, 20, 25 people and they get to know me and I get to know them. And it's fantastic. I love it. And the stories I hear are amazing, you know, of uh, how activated people are right now, how they find what I'm talking about hopeful, which is really important in this moment and how they're ready to roll their sleeves up. The thing I, I always say, Doug, look, every century... Americans have had to remake democracy. This isn't new, right? We ha- we did this at the beginning of the 20th century when corporations were, again, um, holding on to way too much wealth. What I love about looking back at the beginning of the 20th century is that we were led by the suffragettes and we get to do it again, right? We get to have founding mothers and fathers again. Think about that as an opportunity. I didn't know five years ago that I would be part of rebuilding this country this way. And I'm going to be able to tell my hopefully grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that this is what we did, right? We didn't sit on the sidelines. 
And at the same time, though, you don't have animosity to white men as a species. No. You know? <laughs> I'm married to one. <laughs> <laughs> but they feel so under threat. I mean, yeah. and I think back to uh, this woman, Susan Faludi wrote a book. It was, a, it was about white guys and, you know, how white men, white boys are increasingly feeling like the enemy mm. of society, mm. which then they get further entrenched. Right. You know, which is sort of the wrong way. So white guys are thinking, well, shoot, now what's going to happen to me? Not just my advantage, but how disadvantaged am I going to be as we recover from centuries of my advantage? It's always disappointing when I hear people talk about all of these issues as a zero sum game, right? That if women and people of color are winning, somebody else is losing, whereas we can be a society where the pie gets bigger. Right. Part of the problem has been the pie has been too small. We're not growing opportunities for people. For instance, that, you know, infinitesimal amount of capital for women entrepreneurs that I mentioned before. I can be an unapologetic feminist without wanting to bring white men down. Right. And so many men I talk to love having other people at the table. It nurtures their soul as well. They don't have to be on guard as much. They can be more fully human. And think about a society, Doug, where, where we have so many more people able to participate, able to bring their gifts, right? It's good for business right. to have more people at the table, right? Anywhere you see a company that's investing in its entire workforce and giving people an opportunity across the board to rise, those businesses are successful, right? right? And it's it's trying to exclude people that's making businesses not successful right now. So if you want to make money, then you invest in women and people of color. And then you have someone at the table who's saying the things that you're scared to say and yeah. then giving you permission to, oh, we're allowed to talk. Oh, she did it. Good. Now we can talk about this. I see that so much. Think about you're running, if you're running a business or an organization or any entity. And even the nation. Even the nation. Think about that, that cabinet table, right? Where you're just getting the tiniest slice of perspective and input yeah. from those white men. And think of how much you're missing, how many ideas you're missing, uh, how much creativity you're missing, how much social capital you're missing. And that's a loss for the country. You don't feel like it's too late, like we're going to just go off this climate cliff or that America has just so bankrupted its values that, uh So sadly, we had to get to this broken place to get ready for the next era. I hope we're not too late on climate. We need to move really fast, but we have to do it, right? You got to fight for the next green economy. You, there, you don't have a choice right now. We can be an amazing country. Again, I have no doubt about that, but it took a lot to get people energized and activated and ready to redo that. The signs of decay and corruption have been there for a very long time, not just the signs, the actuality of it, but it took the election of 2016 to show just how broken we are. It feels to me as if we need to get almost get off a certain understanding of progress. You just think about topsoil, right, or something. There's a lot of folks who think that, well, we're just going to build more tech and keep going, and you just produce. You yeah. you transform raw material into finished goods, yeah. raw material into finished goods. They don't understand that that's not the way nature works. I'm yeah. looking at my daughter's biology book now where they're just looking at the way plants and animals exchange gas right. goes from one to the other right. or the way soil replenishes itself. But these are circular systems and the American notion of progress and moving West and keep going yeah. and forget the past. We've got to transform that into something more circular. But to so many people that feels like some sort of surrender to the status quo or that we're not going to keep going or that it's like the end of the story. What you just described is the industrial age and the end of it. There are technical problems in the world and there are adaptive problems, right? And a technical problem is something where we know the answer, right? So when people say, oh, well, you can create a company, you do X, Y, and Z, right? They're using a technical lens for that company. If this is how we've always done it for the last 150 years, that's how you would make, you know, a product. And my area of expertise, what I've focused on are adaptive problems, which is these are really difficult problems that need new solutions, right? You're not going to create a green economy based on the industrial age model of production, right? A green economy is going to look and feel and be very, very different. It's got to be much more creative, much more organic, much flatter. 
And, and which means it might not have, I mean, and I look at Al Gore and Deepak Chopra making, yeah. you know, ETFs and funds, yeah. you know, for VC investment in capital intensive green blah. And I'm like, that might not be the way this happens either. Nobody really knows the answer, but we have to invest in a whole bunch of potential solutions. We have to be very agile in the same way that we have to be very agile at looking at how to regulate tech right now. You can't regulate it like it's AT&T and it's a bunch of wires and bricks right. and mortar, right? It's going to be different. You can't regulate a piece of technology. What yeah. we're talking about is regulating the digital media environment. And the culture right. of that, right? I, t- I say to people, it's not the size of Facebook that's the problem. It's the culture of it, right? That we're going to just keep gobbling up all your data. And we're going to keep lying to you about we can hold it safe. Um, And we're going to manipulate your behavior and get you to respond to the most sensationalist thing possible. And we're going to do the very, very least to try to make this a safe environment, right? We're not even going to post a disclaimer on political ads that this hasn't been vetted. Is that so hard? Seriously? So it's it's the culture of the place and the nature of the technology that it is so scalable and so inexpensive that makes this different. And then what are the ways we promote a more adaptive ready society. I mean, education Back is one. To education, right? And um, But there's grown-ups who aren't in school. So we need a different way of engendering that in well, our society. I think this comes back to investing in creativity and entrepreneurship, right? We have to be much less risk averse in terms of uh, being able to invest in great people with creative ideas. Going back to the old business models, the fact that you need you would need in in so many banks and through the Small Business Association, so many markers of institutional support, financial capital to exist to give people a chance is just holding back creativity and entrepreneurship, again, particularly for low income folks, people of color and women. Right. Who are going to be developing, in most cases, the more distributed local businesses that we actually need to create a bottom-up economic reality. That's just it, right? We're going to need co-ops locally. We're going to need craftspeople locally, right? We're going to have to fill these retail stores with human beings, right? You're going to have all that brick and mortar. Uh, And it's going to be things we haven't thought about yet, but some combination of creativity, social capital, community are going to be um, the heart of our neighborhoods. From now on. And then the way to do that, the role of a congressperson, which you will hopefully get to be, is I guess it's twofold, right? You have it's partly, I mean, to get money and support from the federal government to your Your community, you know, but then it's also partly to express this logic and and will of your constituency somehow to lawmaking to the direction of the country. So your first obligation, I think, in this role is to serve your constituents. And I remember talking to somebody who worked for uh, Hillary Clinton when she was in the Senate and the Democrats were in the minority and and she was a, a, a regional representative. I said, this must be frustrating. You have, you know, so many fewer levers of power. She said, no, 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 no. Being a representative of the federal government is enormously powerful, regardless of what's going on in D.C., to ensure that your constituents get access to the services that they need. So when I found this out when my dad was in failing health and we were looking at options for home health care and it was very, very expensive, he was owed benefits from the VA because he was a Korean War veteran and we couldn't get them. We could not get those benefits. In order to get them, we had to hire a lawyer. For benefits, he was owed right? We were just going to go to Nita's office. And uh, sadly, my dad's health uh, failed very quickly. But th- those are the kinds of things you can do for people every day uh, in this position, right? To ensure that they have access to the services and resources that they deserve, right? So that's number one. Number two, in DC, I would be bringing uh, new ideas and ability to work with a whole host of people. I've done that throughout my whole career. So one thing I'm very passionate about is, you know, Doug, in our communities, We could not afford to pay for EMTs and firefighters, right? They're volunteers. Otherwise, they would bankrupt our municipalities. Uh, There is federal legislation that was drafted last year by a Republican to give tax breaks for those folks. And I think that's a brilliant thing to do, right? How else are you going to hold your communities together? The fact that Amazon is paying no corporate income tax and we're not giving a break to EMTs and firefighters is an appalling reflection of our values, I think. When more women are in these positions, uh, particularly when progressive women are uh, have more seats at the table in legislatures around the world, more stuff gets done. So have you been thinking about 
like the, the big issues, the kinds of things that they're asking presidential candidates? Because these are things that you would vote on in Congress. Like, um, do you are you for the Medicare for all? Is that the best direction? So I would love to at some point in time see a single payer system. I don't think you get from here to there in one big leap. And the thing that worries me the most is no matter how you couch it, Doug, the idea of taking people's private insurance away from them would be a field day for Republicans. They would just lick their chops waiting for that, right? So I think the way to begin to get there is to open up Medicare for anybody who wants uh, to pay into it. It will force private insurance to bring their costs down. The bigger that Medicare gets, the more leverage it has to lower drug prices. Uh, And that's the beginning. That's where you start. So you almost use free market competition to create a public alternative that just beats the pants off the private ones. But the public alternative, it has to be really good, right? Yeah. One of the things that was so painful to see was that when the Obama administration launched the um, marketplace and it just crashed immediately and it was such a lost opportunity. Poor things. But yeah. again, you know, that goes back to tech, which we understand. Yeah. You don't do tech by writing a 10,000 yeah. page RFP, request yeah. for proposal, and then yeah. going to Oracle to build something. I know. You know it was so painful. Bottom, and you and I, we knew we're open source coders who yep. wanted to participate, who were begging to participate. They would, I, I knew people at, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley and said, I'll, I'll take time off from work. Yeah to go and do this. And they were shut out. Right. Because it's not there like was it like would have been an old... easy project, no. but it's, it's open it how, up to all the creativity. things get developed. Yeah. Otherwise you're going to have PeopleSoft, nothing against Oracle, although ugh, you're going to have PeopleSoft trying to run your, your world. And that's not, I mean, as opposed to Linux. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was such a missed opportunity, <laughs> yeah. right? That was, it was it this have beautiful opportunity yeah. to show what open source could do, what mm-hmm. distributed coding could do, right? It was this what public per- energy could do. Perfect, it's like, could you imagine putting solving. out the platform and saying, here, it's out for public yeah. review. Are yeah. there any bugs? Is there anything right? that doesn't work? It was so Ugh. perfectly made for that. It was a yep. real lost opportunity. Oh, but that's the thing. The whole Obama administration was made for that. Yeah. He sold us on the idea that yeah. we are the change we've been waiting for. Yeah. He invited us into yeah. his campaign, but and not into shut his it government. Down. That's just it. That's just it. I think Obama is a magnificent human being. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, my, one of my bucket list is to have a coffee with Michelle Obama. I would love that. It wasn't in his DNA to open this up to crowdsourcing the way that you and I think about right. it. And that was a lost opportunity. It really was because people were ready to get up and do things, uh, but we were shut yeah. out. Yeah, and that's right? why we ended up getting Occupy. It was all the energy that he unleashed looking for a place to express itself. And it's also, you know, the, also the lack of investment they made in state democratic parties in the local party. Part of the decimation of 2016, I remember looking at that map of all the states we lost and it was so devastating. Oh my gosh, we've lost the entire Midwest all those governorships, you know, uh, all those gubernatorial positions. And we just had it to start from scratch and yeah, rebuild. But that was an effort that began in Jimmy Carter's presidency yeah, yeah, is yeah. when this the is conservatives a long time started in the making. that. Yeah, yeah. And it was They've smart. been doing this for a long time. So going back, you know, when you say we're getting our asses kicked on choice in states, they've been outspending us by billions on messaging mm. and on investing in anti-choice politicians for years and years, right? We're we're catching up now as fast as we can. But this isn't this wasn't new, right? This was decades of work right. on their part. And right? it was initiated cynically. It was big business looking for a constituency to bring over to their side. And they went, oh, if we appeal to this group of people, yeah. either gun owners right. or abortion anti-choice. rights. Yeah. Anti-likers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we begin, right? We we roll up our sleeves and we rebuild and we don't give up because it's too important, this fight. And uh, we make a new America for our kids. And then how about the America for the world? Like, um, I'm sure you've thought about all these wars that we're in. What do we do with this war on terror? Do do we pull back? Back? Do we change our approach? A top priority of any member of Congress is keeping the country safe. I think that there are smarter ways of doing this than having decades being mired in a place like Afghanistan, which has never been a winnable 
place, right? If you're in a place, Doug, where the Soviets threw up their hands and ran home, you're in a bad place. <laughs> right. Because they're willing to do stuff that we, we wouldn't we do. We wouldn't either. do. Yeah. Right. So it is such a heartbreaking history we now have of what almost two decades uh, in this country, making very little progress, uh, throwing trillions of dollars at it. And you think, you know, what else could we have done with the trillions of dollars? We certainly have to work around the world um, against terrorism. But one way to do that is to build the economies of Mm -hmm. these countries. And again, invest in women and girls. Everywhere you invest in women and girls, good things happen in countries. Uh, I just think we have to be so much smarter than this, than looking at every problem um, uh, like a nail and just taking that big old hammer to it. Right. I mean, we can't just be a checkbook either, though. Uh, I think investment is different than checkbook, right? We need to have countries that we're working with that are part of the global economy, you know, we don't we don't live alone uh, in this world. We need to be encouraging those countries to make livable standards uh, for their workers because it doesn't help our economy if you have you know slave wages uh, in in developing countries. We need to focus on climate change everywhere, right? Otherwise, we're not going to have a globe. Um, and we need to forestall um, refugee problems. That's the biggest threat I think that we're looking at right now is people migrating around the world and being caught. Um, right without a nation anymore. Well, it turns the whole world into this weird bad neighborhood with just just everybody on the street. Do you know that the average stay in refugee camps is 17 years? 17 years. Yeah, that's like most of your life, you know? That's just like in a slave camp for 17 years without rights, without a country, without a life. Um, That's just appalling. Uh, right. Me. But the negative feedback loop is in the more of that that there is, the more demagogues will say we got to build our walls to protect ourselves from these swaths of migrating countryless right. people. Right. Well, look, it's easy to criminalize other people, right? It's like criminalize poverty. Criminalize poverty, criminalize addiction, criminalize immigration, criminalize color. Gender, maybe. All to hold on to power. Right. Right. Because we know that immigrants aren't criminals. Like we know this, all the statistics right. show that, right. That, that immigrants come and they work really hard <laughs> and we have uh, towns in the Midwest who don't have enough workers. Now we're better than this moment. I sure hope so. You know, a lot of times I look again, back to Bible or something and I read and it's like, Oh, this is the way it, it has been for the majority of civilization. Like, like you say, this is not new. There's always war and oppression and bad people and racism. And, but I agree. I feel like we've progressed. We don't need to be there anymore. I think about the 20th century, right? We call the, many people call the 20th century, the American century. It was the American century because we had a fast growing, really robust middle-class. That's what made it different from every other century before and after. That's what we need. That's what's broken. We talked about the broken parts, right? You're right. like standing on sand. We used to look like a diamond shaped society with the middle class as the biggest segment. Now we look like an hourglass. We cannot get back to being our best selves until we fix that. That's the starting point. That's why I'm running. Right. Right. And because it- if you can't feel safe and secure in your everyday life, you can't look out and think about solving other problems. But the path to it is different. So when yeah. the path in industrialism was grow, 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 right. and that's the way we fill out the middle, now it's going to be flow, 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 flow. In other words, it's how do we recirculate money? How do we increase the velocity of money? It's solutions like you know Ron Kim, the assemblyman in New York, who's looking at alternative currencies and how do you capitalize women yeah. and localities. Yeah. It's a very differently structured economy. It's also, it's mobile, right? We're all going to be mobile. We're all going to be part of the gig. So it used to be the job came with benefits. Now the people need to go with benefits, right? right? Wherever you go, you know, that 401k you were saying that needs to go with you. Right. Just like I can bring my phone number with me from Sprint to AT&T. Right. You bring your health insurance with you now, if you, if you want, right. You need to bring your retirement fund, your sick time, your comp days, they all go with you. And we desperately need really strong unions for, particularly for freelancers, because there are no protections for workers right now. Finally, before I let you go, I'm wondering from a a team human perspective, how do you currently and how do you plan to keep yourself human, coherent and healthy Mm. as you move into this, what looks to me like just this horrific maelstrom of activity I have a poem by uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson on my desk. It's more like a little 
like a little essay than a poem. And it's about making sure that you're paying attention to every single day and you're bringing to it all the values that are important to you and that you have no regrets in the day. My big challenge I'm finding these days are, you know, the campaigning days are just very, very different from any other kind of day <laughs> in the human species, right? You're, you are out, you're meeting a ton of people. There are a lot of things coming at you because you're running for a public office. Everybody has an opinion about what you should be doing and mm. saying and what you should be wearing, right? This is just a constant. It's so worse than a book tour. It is yeah. so much worse <laughs> than a book tour because the, the criticism is just everywhere, right? Right. So I am trying hard to hold on to those reasons why I'm running. When I first filled out the paperwork, you have to, Emily's list sent me a, a checklist of 64 things to do to launch a campaign like this. I went to, and the first step is to open up the bank account. Took like an hour and a half, lovely woman I'm working with. At the end of all this paperwork, she leans over and whispers to me, are you really running for Congress? And I said, I am. And she said, well, let me tell you something. I get five, six days a year. I've used them up. I have no union every day. I feel like I could get fired here. I have three kids and my mother lives with me. Are you going to help me with that? Her name was Anita. And I said, that's exactly why I'm running. So every day I try to remember Anita. Right. And make a difference in her life. And yeah. then that's the whole point. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you, Allison. Oh, Fine. my pleasure, Doug. It's so nice to see you as always. The enthusiasm people like you have for me running is really uplifting. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was congressional candidate Allison Fine. You can find out more about her at AllisonFine2020.com. You can find out more about Allison and all of our guests at TeamHuman.fm. Don't forget to come see Team Human Live with Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir on March 5th at WNYC Green Space. And check out the whole Team Human book, now being serialized at Medium.com slash team dash Human. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our editor is Luke Robert Mason, and our producer is Joshua Chaptelin. The Russian propagandist was played by David Hudetz. Our opening theme was kindly donated by Fugazi, and our closing theme by the great Mike Watt on bass. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.